welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 26 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. So the theme of this month's podcast is going to be sleep in other cultures. We're going to learn about how some other cultures think about sleep and how culture and beliefs can also impact on sleep. So welcome, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone else. Happy New Year. So what's been topical in sleep this month for you, Moira? It's good to have just got through the Christmas New Year period. That's been topical because I actually caught up on a lot of sleep. Did you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Always nice to try and make sure there's an afternoon nap pretty much every day on, the, on holidays. Absolutely. But what's been sort of topical in, in the media and, and in your sleep world? Coincidentally, after we did the podcast last month on jet lag and talked about the Qantas Streamliner and interviewed Phil Caps from Qantas about yeah. their experience, I actually had a chance to fly on the Dreamliner, completely coincidentally. Oh, wow. Not sponsored. Not sponsored, <laughs> no. And I so Will, my son's been completely obsessed by the Dreamliner. Mm-hmm. So for his birthday, wanted to go on a trip and it was flying some domestic flights from Melbourne to Sydney and back. So we went for a day trip. Yeah, was it, how was it? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. He, he had a great time. And I could now going on the plane and having interviewed Phil and listened to the things that Qantas has done to yeah. customise it for ultra long haul, yes. you could really see what they've built into the yeah. design. Yeah. What a shame it's only Melbourne, Sydney. <laughs> like you didn't get to have a sleep or no, do anything. <laughs> didn't get to do any of those things. But we were pretty lucky. We got to sample business class on the way up and premium economy on the way back. So we, we did all right. That's so, good. Very nice plane. So I can highly recommend recommend that for long-haul flights. (laughs) Any other follow-ups from our last podcast? Yeah, well, we did a podcast on sleep economics as well. It was one of our recent ones. Mm. There's a couple of papers that were interesting. Some things even before that podcast about in India, one of the differences people see one of the stark contrasts between the wealthy and the poor Mm. is actually sleep. So, Mm. you know, being in a middle class in India means you've got a safe place to sleep and not being in the middle class or being poorer than that means you're often sleeping on the street or in unsafe conditions. So some of the sort of things that came out from that research was that really how people sleep is actually a measure of socioeconomic status. And that was interesting for India. But then even more recently, there's been a paper out of the US in New York showing exactly the same thing. Really? Yeah, I was going to say, I I was thinking, as you said, that it's not just India. I'm sure it's in our big modern westernised cities as well, that 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 divide is there. Absolutely. And it was less about safety in the US because most people actually had a safe place, Mm. but it was actually about sleep and stress and those impacts on sleep. I think it was one of my picks of the month really early on, like a couple of years ago now, the podcast Freakonomics. Mm Mm-hmm. And we did a little, it was one of those episodes of this guy who was talking about that exact thing, like that divide, that's lack of sleep is a socioeconomic issue, yeah. largely, like in a lot of cases. Might put that on the show notes again, actually, just to remind us to have a listen to that. Yeah, see, it's all about economics. <laughs> So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep in other cultures. And we sort of wonder, well, why why does that matter? So why do we need to look at how different cultures sleep? Well, largely because for a lot of people we see in our clinical practice, their sleep problems or the way they perceive sleep is tied up in their beliefs and their own expectations around sleep. Mm. 
And often they're not necessarily facts about sleep, but we've all grown up in a certain milieu and our family will have its own sort of stories and beliefs about sleep and society has its own stories and beliefs about sleep. And that can then really set people up for, well, hang on, my sleep isn't meeting these expectations that I've been sort of imprinted with or grown up with. Mm -hmm. So if we look at how other cultures sleep, it can actually help recalibrate us and think, well, maybe the things we think are not necessarily that widespread or not representative of how everybody sleeps. We can identify our own cultural beliefs that we didn't know were just specific to us sometimes. We thought that everyone believes that. And you'll hear through the interviews as part of this theme, that's something that comes through in different cultures. There are actually different ways of thinking about sleep. And one of the things that has come through in papers out of pre-industrialised societies in the last few years is in some of the African uh, societies, not even a word in the language for insomnia and almost a complete indifference yeah, to yes. disturb sleep at night. Yeah, that's really telling, isn't it? That's that's come out for a couple of years now that, that they say when we go and do this research in these these societies, these communities, they, 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 there's no translational word for insomnia, and that sort of says it all. So to help get some context about sleep in other communities, I had the chance to talk to Dr Andrew Beale. And Andrew Beale's really been on the radar for me as someone I've wanted to interview this year after the report was published in Scientific Reports earlier in the year, where he looked at sleep in two communities in Mozambique. And this is on a background of a couple of other papers in the last few years about sleep in pre-industrial communities from Africa and other countries, really questioning this dogma that we have, hey, we're all sleeping less in 2017 than we ever have been in the past. And that was, as you'll hear from Andrew, one of the stimulus for his research. So Andrew is a research fellow at the University of Surrey. And as you'll hear, he was living in Mozambique at the time of undertaking this research and actually setting the research up. And it's a really nice example of just how opportunistically research things can come along. You know, he spoke to somebody at a local meeting when he was in London and said, hey, can we collaborate together? I'm living in this place that I think would be really interesting. And you'll hear him talk about that. Congratulations on your paper in Scientific Reports. It really is one of my favourite papers in Sleep this year and really expands that discussion about the sleep in a modern world and how that compares to what sleep is like in other communities. In, in doing the study, what type of questions were you trying to answer? Well, we're really trying to get to the, the bottom of the idea that sleep duration is decreasing in society. There are a few programs that have come on the BBC in this year, actually, called Sleepless Britain and the Truth About Sleep. And they really, they really paint this picture that we're all suffering from a sleep deprivation epidemic. Our group really kind of wanted to challenge that and so the research was looking at the idea that if you look at communities in situ if you like you can see what sleep is actually like in people's daily lives and also by choosing communities that might be at earlier stages of development some people might say ancestral but we would probably disagree with that early stages of development before we've entered the modern 24-hour lifestyle we can kind of get a picture of you know what what did people what do people really sleep like in different contexts, in different communities and in different societies? And does that help us understand a little bit about this sleep deprivation epidemic in our modern world? Why did you choose those particular two communities in Mozambique? The honest answer is I was living in Mozambique. So I okay. was living in the Milange when I met Malcolm von Schantz and, and he was the person who really drove the, the idea of doing the research program. I suggested the idea. And so I've been aware of the sleep studies in communities for a little while and thought they were quite interesting and suggested to Malcolm when I met him at one UK clock club, which is the meeting of the circadian biologists in the UK. 
I said, look, I've got, I'm living in a community like the ones that are being studied and the papers have come out from. Can, can we do something together? And he said, yes, let's, uh, let's run together a little bit of an actigraphy study with a, with a few other bits and pieces. And so my town, Milange, was what we would call a developing town. Uh, it's not city size. It's not village size. It's sort of in between. One of these kind of classic sub-Saharan African growing towns. And I really thought that something that would enhance this research would be to compare that situation directly to a village or a community that was neighbouring Milange. Uh-huh. And uh, there are a number of these communities in the region surrounding Milange. But uh, actually, my wife, who was the reason why we're living in Mozambique, she worked in these places. So we knew them quite well. And Tengwa was was a, an accessible community by motorbike. The, sh- the chief of the village was very amenable to, to me working. We, we had a, a good relationship and the, the, the community were open to participate and they, they understood the importance. So of all of the communities surrounding Milange, Tengwa was the, the one that was the most willing to participate. They're all very similar and we could have chosen any of them. But there we had really rural community, a a proper farming community. It was not very far from Milange, which would have shared a lot of the same family history, a lot of the same ancestry. People moved from Tengwa to Milange quite a lot of the time. So they were very comparable communities. What about the sleeping conditions in those two communities? What what are they like? Milange is is a kind of developing town. People have roughly mud brick houses, uh, some with a bit more solid construction. So they're kind of houses with rooms and, and bedrooms. A lot of people will have proper beds. I mean, they're, they're not kind of what we think of as very comfortable in our UK or Australia context. But, you know, they were raised off the floor and they had mattresses, most of them, and they had proper bedrooms. A lot of the houses would be quite small, but so people were sharing bedrooms and, and living spaces quite quite compact with large families. But on the whole, it was a reasonably comfortable way of life. Whereas Tengwa was that kind of picture of, of Africa that you get on the TV, the, the kind of mud brick houses with the grass roofs and one single room and people sleeping on the floor on mats. Again, like they were surviving in that context. I wouldn't say they were maybe enjoying their sleep in the way that we think about enjoying sleep. They were kind of very basic sleeping environments. One room in one house, lots of people sharing. Often animals would share the space or, or at least very close to, so you know, across the other side of the wall. And most people were sleeping sort of on the floor on very basic mats or or very basic bedding so not very comfortable at all really. And as well as the electricity and other factors you had to correct for are there some traditional or cultural beliefs and behaviours around sleep that impacted on your research or you had to take into consideration? The the kind of story that I thought of around this traditional belief is is how people value sleep so we didn't really take this into account in the research so much and the the information we we drove from it but the whole research program was conducted in this interview context so I got a lot of information from people in this interview style and so I found out that people would they wouldn't value sleep in the way we do so when they go to sleep and a visitor would arrive let's say at midnight or in the night they would expect to be woken up and they would almost think it would be rude not to so it doesn't matter if you wake someone up and they're in the middle of their sleep and they're dreaming and they look happy. That it is appropriate to go and wake that person up if you've arrived in that village to, to greet them. So that was quite interesting because I guess we treat our sleep as very, very sacred. We're very, yeah. We feel like we're very vulnerable when we sleep in our bedrooms and you close the door and make sure everything's calm. Turn off phones, hopefully. 
and get very annoyed if anyone wakes us up. It has to be an emergency. And, and there it's not so. so. That was something that was quite interesting, that the traditional behaviour around sleep. In Australia, a lot of the problems with sleep is people get a very rigid way of thinking about sleep, you know, like you describe. And I'm trying to encourage people to think more fluidly about sleep and more flexibly about sleep. And you know, it's a nice yeah. example of people living in a village environment just naturally having a fluidity of thinking about sleep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That kind of idea that sleep is varying amongst communities and different situations, I think is quite healthy. People don't seem to, there isn't a word for insomnia in the in the Chiche or in the local language. We have to describe that as, as a you know, really bad sleep. And I think that that idea that people don't worry about sleep, about not getting sleep, they just they just do it or they don't, is, is probably quite healthy, I, I would say, in that context. Yeah, we need to cultivate a bit more of that, I think. In doing the study, what did you actually do? So I've already mentioned that we conducted the whole thing in an interview context. And, and what I meant by that is the predominant assay or, or analysis was actigraphy, so actimetry. People would wear these the watches and we would get a measure of their rest activity rhythms. The watches also recorded light and temperature, so we'd get a an idea of the light exposure and the, the temperature rhythms as well throughout the two weeks that we gave them the watches for. But when we were giving them and when we were explaining that, I, I wanted to include a questionnaire. So based on the Horn-Osberg questionnaire to get a morning eveningness measure, but also, like I said, a bit of information about their lifestyle. So we asked them about livestock and, and we asked them about how many people they shared their sleeping space with. And all those things kind of fed into into the analysis at the end to build up a, a bit more of a complete picture of what was going on. And so in the paper, we've, we refer to three things in particular, and that is the number of people sharing the same room and the type of bed and also the physical activity. And the physical activity we could see from the, the actigraphy data and, and we could see that it goes up in the morning and dips down and comes up again in the afternoon and tails off at night time. But what was interesting from speaking to them is they told me what they were doing. So in the morning, they went to farm. In the, in the middle of the day where you see the actigraphy data drip drop down, the, the activi activity drops down, they said that's when we come home and come and do things around the house, have lunch, still active, but not, you know, not hacking at the soil. Mm -hmm. And then they would go into the farms in the afternoon if, if the heat had passed from the day and, and if they got more work to do. And, and that was some a kind of little nugget that really that coloured the data in, in quite a nice way. So... Yeah, that interview was, was really quite important. Of course, I had to do that through an interpreter, but they were very close friends, so they understood what, where I was coming from, and, and they really helped me out. So that was, that was Evo, which I, I thank at the end of the paper. And then what did you show? Kind of three main findings. The first one is that, that, that sleep is delayed, even with a very dim electric light exposure. And that kind of agrees with a lot of the research that's come out around sleep and the circadian rhythms that light is very influential and particularly light in the evening can delay sleep and delay circadian rhythms into the night and we showed basically that that happens in the this kind of naturalistic context and even with a very dim light bulb so the town had had electricity but it was kind of a 20 watt bulb tungsten filament bulb in a single room it really was only really enough to to allow you to walk around your house and make sure you don't trip up any over anything and maybe do a bit of homework but it's not like the bright blazing light we have. So that kind of confirmed the studies that were done before. Um, and on top of that, that, that delayed the sleep is, is also that the light exposure during the, during the daytime was, was slightly different between the two communities, reflecting their lifestyle. So the farm 
community, the, the rural community did a lot of farming, of course they were exposed to a lot of light. The town community were exposed to a lot of light as well, at least more than we are in, in the UK in daytime uh, measures, especially during the winter. That wasn't the most significant effect delaying their, their circadian rhythms in the town community. And, and actually, um, that agrees with a paper that recently came out from the University of Study as well, a modelling paper from Anne Skeldon and, and Dirk Jan Dijk, that kind of showed how influential, how important electric light is in delaying circadian rhythm. So even very, very small amounts of electric light can delay your circadian rhythms quite substantially, even in the context of, of Milange, the town community, which had more light than we did, that tiny bit of electric light. So that was the first finding. Uh, the second finding was about the sleep duration, and, and that's where our study differed ever so slightly from similar studies on communities, uh, sleeping communities. And we didn't find a reduction in sleep duration associated with electric light or associated with the urban community. And that kind of suggested that the delay in sleep timing is quite a separate phenomenon from acquiring a daily habit of partial sleep deprivation. We kind of associated with that with simply that the town community could wake up later. They had no social restrictions on them waking up later. And so they would go to bed an hour later, but they could also get up an hour later. That's not the case that we have in some of the other studies and also in our UK lifestyle where we're kind of restricted to the nine o'clock working day or even eight o'clock in some cases. So we didn't find a sleep duration difference between the communities. But what we did find and, and what was quite, I was quite satisfied with from the actigraphy data is that we can find that there's more to sleep than sleep duration. The activity data allows you to get a measure of the quality of sleep. And so the quality of sleep did really differ between the two communities. And actually the town community had a better quality of sleep than the rural community. And what we found was uh, the predominant reasons behind that were those measures that I spoke about in the interview questions, the things like the comfort, the type of bed and the amount of activity were a lot less comfortable. So less comfortable beds and, and a much higher level of, of really kind of hard physical activity in the rural community. And that seemed to influence the, the quality of sleep. So we have this idea maybe that that there's a rural ideal in sleep quality. If you wanted to get the best sleep, go to a rural place. But, but actually in modern day, actual rural communities in sub-Saharan Africa, at least, a rural uh, picture of sleep is, is not as nice as we might think it is. Yeah, that's really interesting and really nice uh, work and shows again that sleep duration, the story may not be that we're sleeping less than our predecessors or people living in other communities. Have you had the opportunity to recalibrate the BBC with their messages? I hope so. I mean, I've, I've given a, you know, a few talks and I had an article published in The Biologist, which is the Royal Society of Biology, the, the network, the professional network of biologists in the UK. I'm trying to say, don't go around this message that sometimes gets put forward by the BBC, that there is more to sleep than just this idea that it's decreasing. Yeah, well, the work that you've done certainly give us, given us good ammunition to go to the media with, with some of those counter messages. So thanks for that. Thank you. Well, thanks for interviewing Andrew. That was, that was really, really interesting. What a great sort of insight into sleep in different countries, different communities, in fact. What were your take-home messages, really, or your sort of the summary of those that 10 minutes or so with him? So whilst the headline from his article and what sort of got picked up in the media was the effect of electricity on sleep and electric light 
does delay sleep onset and have a community go to sleep that bit later. Part of the richness and the reason to try and talk to someone who's actually done research is the bit you don't get out of the paper is just those little stories about, well, why did you choose those communities? And then he was just living there anyway. That was interesting, wasn't it? What are their beliefs about sleep? So that little nugget he talked about where it was just normal if someone comes to visit in the middle of the night. You just wake, <laughs> wake them up and you go back you know, to sleep it's, again. It's no big deal. And mm. in fact, I'd be more upset if they didn't mm. wake, wake be me really, up. Be really rude to not do so. Yeah. yeah. And culturally, you compare or contrast that to how people think about sleep. You know, people I see in Australia in 2017, mm. it's like I've built my very precious sleep environment and do mm. not intrude on that because, you know, that is my safe place and I don't want anything. Yeah getting in the way of that. Yeah, well, we're sort of, we're, we're meant to be sleeping well and sleeping in a big block. That's our, that's the healthcare messages, really, that we're, aren't we? We're telling people to sleep as much as you can, like to get your seven to eight hours minimum and to get, make sure it's quality sleep and it's not disturbed and you have a safe environment and it's warm, not too warm, not too cool. Exactly. So maybe the, <laughs> it's tricky because we want, we do want that messaging about prioritise mm-hmm. sleep and provide an appropriate place for sleep but also want that sort of flexibility around sleep, yeah, as, yeah, sleep as well. Such amazing research. And I remember I have read that paper anyway during mm. the year. But one of the things that I, I I guess I'm confused about or question a little bit is I get why it's so important to look back on sort of all these more basic you know, emerging communities where they might have uh, either just emerging technology compared to us or ones that have absolutely no technology or infrastructure in that sort of way. But I wonder, because I do think... Because you say, or we say, you know, well, maybe we're not getting, we're getting the same amount of sleep in a way. Like look back there, like sleep was disturbed anyway. Sleep was uh, sometimes, you know, biphasic, et cetera, or multiphasic. But I think about that things have changed maybe just more recent years. Like it's, it's like say 10 years ago or 20 years ago or say 40 years ago when I was a child. Our sleeping environment was dif- was definitely different to now. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my home that I grew up in, for instance, obviously we had one television that went off at a certain time and that was it. And I guess we had lamps we could read, but we, we just, everyone sort of just went to bed and there was lights out and the, the house was quiet and there was no beaming lights or so, any. So you got lots of siblings, so co-sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, we, well, co-sleeping but in different beds. <laughs> Not, yeah, often there was like three siblings at least in a room yeah. and that was fine. I don't have any recollection of that being any kind of any big deal. In fact, it was really nice because you got to chat a little bit, and, uh, especially on Christmas morning. That was really exciting to have yeah. people to share that with. Yeah, you're right. So that's an interesting point because that's the research doesn't really address that. Is how has sleep evolved just in, in more recent times yeah. rather than hundreds of years ago or two hundred years ago? Yeah. So we still. I mean, how are we going to address that issue? Good point. <laughs> So that's where we may get some insights from talking to Hamanchu and the next interviews mm. with Dr. Hamanchu Garg. And Hamanchu is someone who worked with me in Australia for a couple of years and um, really came to me and said he wanted to train in sleep medicine to be able to develop sleep medicine in India. So I've really supported him with that project. And he's now working in India. He's the head of respiratory and sleep medicine at Artemis Hospital in Gurugan, an adjunct professor at SG. University in also in Gurugan. And Hamanchu is going to talk to us a bit about some of the common sleep disorders in India, but then get on to some of the beliefs about sleep in India. And one of the fascinating things for me is that India does give an example of that sort of generational change in sleep. So I see sort of modern 
people that see themselves as modern westernised Indians mm. who approach sleep in a very similar way to people I see in Australia in 2017. And then I see people, their parents' generation, who approach sleep in a way maybe you're talking about. Mm. You know, 40 it, years ago. Or, yeah. yeah. But yeah. they're still approaching it in the same way and yeah. have a very different way of thinking about sleep yeah. compared to just one generation later. Thanks for helping us out, Hamanchi. Thanks, David, for uh, you know doing this. So what are some of the common sleep problems that you see in India? See, the common sleep problems are the same that I think we would see anywhere in the world and in Australia, you know, a lot of insomnia, a lot of uh, sleep apnea and, you know, some restless legs, some narcolepsy. So I would think that the spectrum of diseases uh, in terms of sleep disorders are pretty much the same. But as you would understand that the level of awareness is much different here. So people won't present so much with the sleep problems to a physician. A lot of people would just accept insomnia. And we tend to only see very bad sleep apnea. We, we do see all of those disorders. And, you know, wherever an attempt has been made to study the epidemiology, I think the prevalence is pretty much the same. And the spectrum is also very similar. Yeah, as you say, you only see often the severe sleep apnea. Is that because snoring is perceived differently in India? To the, you know, in Australia, it's something yes. you know, snoring must be an issue. But how is it perceived in India? Yeah, so I think traditionally and you know, mythologically, some of the mythological characters like Kumkarans, the saying about snoring away to glory, and it is traditionally thought of as something of a deep and you know very refreshing sleep. So that's that's a big challenge uh, because the way it is perceived is then therefore uh, you know not something that to be concerned about, and that's slowly changing though. But uh, that's traditionally been the problem. Yeah, and if someone's having trouble with sleep in India, just say they've got insomnia and can't get to sleep, where do they go for help? First go to either a GP and the second stop would be a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And often uh, I think both these, neither of the general practitioners are very skilled in dealing with it. Um, they would uh, just prescribe them benzodiazepines and uh, or sometimes they would just ignore it. Uh, or if they're too troubled with it, then the next stop would normally be psychiatrist. They're still not, I mean, the whole concept of sleep physicians is still not, I mean, established here. And then what about in rural India? So so where there's not that sort of same developed healthcare system, you know, in a village, where would what would somebody do if they felt like they weren't sleeping well? There are a lot of these, uh, what we call bads or neem hakeems, of people practicing sort of traditional medicine, Ayurvedic uh, stuff, or some sort of massage therapy. So a lot of that stuff does happen in the villages. And they also do not get too very worried about sleep very easily. You know, insomnia is not particularly a rural problem. It's yeah. not something that you would, people in the rural area would normally, it's more of a sort of a westernized or a problem that people, so, uh, they would normally put up with that for a long time, but if what at all that the help that is available is the complementary medicine sort of uh, rural practitioners which are, you know, dealing with this. So the only time I've got patients who come to me from sort of far off and rural are the ones when they're really troubled, you know, on the verge of suicide and things like that. So then moving away from sleep disorders and getting more to just how people sleep, what are some of the traditional sleeping practices in Indian culture? So, uh, you know, a lot of co-sleeping happens. The whole, you know, I, why? one, because of the pressure of the, you know, de demographics and population and constraints of big houses so there is a lot of co-sleeping that happens you know if there is a family the brothers and the sisters or the mother and the child uh, even if there is no constraint the traditional is that the mother will always sleep with the child i mean now the parents will sleep will, will co-sleep with the child so 
that's a very strong tradition here and also because of the constraints and a lot of co-sleeping a lot of people sleeping in one room or a family sleeping in one room so that's that's a, a, you know very traditional thing here and in that traditional village environment what do people sleep on they'd not be formal beds like you would normally see in the urban areas but cots of, of different sizes and shapes and different forms remember this is all from the very traditional times when people were involved in farming and then be tired in in the evening it doesn't really matter where they slept yes um, but yes they that's not no longer the lifestyle now and then if there's co-sleeping and everyone in the family sort of sleeping together does that mean everyone goes to bed at the same time or you know what happens if one person's not sleeping well and gets up do they wake everybody else up you know how does that just work in a practical sense that's a real challenge i think so people if you don't understand the concepts of sleep and you know everyone's no uh, it's not always that the people see the like like the mother will finish the the, the daily chores and then come to the bed and the children may sleep earlier or later so that does become a big challenge and i think one of the disturbing things and one of the first things to fix when people have problems or you know somebody snoring heavily and then the other person is often going to be disturbed with that or, or you know is a, is a person who can't sleep well and then somebody switching on the light or coming so that sort of uh, is a big challenge and uh, there it doesn't necessarily that you know everyone's sleeping although they are co sleeping because everyone's involved in their own routines so it is a little bit of a challenge and often you know if it is also used as a living room and people are having the dinner and then watching tv at the same place that also becomes a challenge so then shifting again to talk about some of the cultural aspects of sleep when i was last in india with you i heard for the first time actually this suggestion of sleeping to the with your head facing to the south or to the east where where does that come from what what's that all about so that's all the traditional indian science of vastu shastra you know vastu shastra is the science or the you know we call it methodology or what um, methodology about how things should be placed now this was to basically this was done in, you know many years uh, many centuries before and that was to optimally utilize the sunlight and then you know having some sort of common civic sense around how to build your house and how to what direction should what be and they had a bit about you know the pole north pole and the magnetic pole of the earth and when how to it's not completely backed by science but it was backed by science or the knowledge which was which was available at that point so it is very actually elaborate it is a, a big shastra in itself which completely points out where and what direction should you have your kitchen and then the bathrooms and the master bedroom it's very elaborate and a lot of people still follow it and what is thought to be really uh, bad is if you face your head towards the north when you're sleeping that's thought to be against the magnetic pull of the earth and therefore brings you a lot of bad health it's sort of a bad omen and therefore it is uh, not something that is recommended in hindu philosophy there is some writing about different depths of sleep so we're used to in a neurophysiology sense thinking about rem sleep and non rem sleep in different stages how does hindu texts or scriptures how have they dealt with this concept of different types of sleep so the hindu texts are actually very elaborate about uh, you know sleep the old texts were actually derived from vedas you know and the veda that dealt with was actually ayurveda and a lot of the terms that we use in the western um, medicine like excessive sleepiness so it was nidraksha and in sleeplessness which is so the traditional belief in ayurveda about the sleep problems is they they believe that the 
sleep is basically the the whole body is derived from three or four factors kapha vata and pitta and if you have any imbalance in these things you may either have excessive sleepiness if it is a problem with kapha uh-huh. or if you have a problem in vata you may have asvapna and therefore these so basically saying somewhere you know that it is the mind body imbalance which can cause this problem so that's been very well described in ayurveda and they still some of the practitioners still follow it but also what has been very beautifully described in the yogic in the yogic philosophy is these which kind of correspond with the stages of sleep so uh, you know starting from jagrat which is the stage of waking and therefore swapna which is the stage of dreaming which probably corresponds to what we described as rem and therefore and and shushupti which is the dreamless sleep or the deep sleep mm-hmm. so these are the actually also the four stages of consciousness the fourth stage being turiya which is the ultimate stage of consciousness so kind of it is uh, you know as for the hindu philosophy it is just not sleep it is also a different state of being or a different state of consciousness now we we've been able to sort of you know we have a corresponding thing about jagrat we know waking stage we know swapna which is the rem and non rem which is shupti but the turiya which is the ultimate stage of consciousness that one can actually go through by deep meditation also and that's been sort of intriguing and people from the olden institute have been chasing this for some time and putting people to meditation to dis- try and describe if there is something which is corresponding to that state of turiya which is there's been a lot of debate about it and ultimately i think people have realized this is something which is cannot be uh, described very well with the with the current tools that's very interesting thanks a lot for those insights manchu that's good well you have been busy <laughs> another another really good interview yeah i really enjoyed talking to him manchu and really yeah. nice to really explore those different ways of thinking about sleep that are not only you know what sleep like in india in 2017 yeah. but how's it been for thousands of years yes. and some of the cultural yeah. beliefs around sleep yeah thanks to manchu if you're listening that was that was really really good i particularly liked the snoring your way to glory the fact that snoring is in fact seen as quite a a sign of really good sleep or and good health probably Yeah. prosperity or you know that you're snoring away and you know because if you think about that the cultural images on our TVs and the cartoons of the snorer and it's because you think about our time here in Australia you know like early 90s it's only 20 something years ago it's not very long ago that we were similar like we, we, when I was first working at the sleep disorder center and putting electrodes on people's heads and a lot of people didn't realize that snoring was anything to be concerned about It was always just a funny thing really it wasn't just a noise oh my dad's a snorer and just something that's a bit annoying to the family or to the partner so i mean i mean and that's changed quite rapidly i think everyone knows most people would you say most people in australia are aware that it's something to be checked out that you yeah. should think about maybe if you're a snorer the messages are out there in the last 20 years yeah certainly a lot better disseminated yes we still every week see someone who snores and stops breathing and been doing it for a long period of time and no one's and, really thought to yeah, yeah. no one's thought to to, to address it yeah. yeah so yeah i thought i mean there was lots in that wasn't there with him and i still i still you know what i'd love to ask and maybe when we're getting back on if i do the interview i want to know if his bed is north south <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I, i know the answer to that but i'm not saying <laughs> <laughs> because no, not so much just just in terms of how widespread is that view like he's a modern man with his modern medicine and he's but i just wonder if it's something that he still like in his family or you know his his siblings his parents whether we people still do do that out of just sort of um, out of habit almost or yeah, cultural yeah, it's, of, that's a good point and in yeah. talking with him when i was actually with him 
in, in India a couple of months ago, it's really the Vastu Shastra is like Feng Shui. Yes. So we've heard, all heard yes. of Feng Shui. That's really on trend, isn't it, in yeah. Australia, Feng Shui, <laughs> what well, was 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very similar thing. Yeah. So it's not necessarily in particular socioeconomic classes. Mm. It is, you know, if you engage a, desi- a designer yeah. to design your house, they'll be yeah. incorporating those architectural principles yeah. in your house design. Yeah, that's a, to be followed up with some. Um, I'd love to know just generally. All right, you're on notice. <laughs> we'll ask you next time. So that's a couple of really interesting interviews. I really enjoyed doing them and found I learnt a lot, even though this is something I think about a lot. I, I mm. still came away feeling like I learnt quite a lot about thinking about sleep differently. Mm. What were some of the take-homes for you, Moira, out of those interviews? Just a reminder, I guess, that we that thinking about your sleep or like the context of your own sleep is cultural. And whether that's cultural from your, you know, the ethnicity types of where you live, et cetera, or whether it's just from your family, like within, you know, within Australia, you know, suburban Australia, there's a whole lot of different, people think differently about their sleep and what, what they've been told or what they heard. It might not be what their grandmother passed on to them, what YouTube clip or what their person on Instagram said about it. We're in, we're just we're, the we're influenced, I guess, by so many different factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mate. That's that's probably oh, what yeah. was a real eye opener of just how influenced we are by those various cultural beliefs. Yeah, no, yeah, nice point. And I think that's an important point for health professionals as well, because you know, health professionals have all grown up in that same milieu mm. with that same cultural and societal beliefs about sleep. Mm. Don't get much formal education about sleep, so often then graduate with cultural beliefs as their sort of knowledge base around sleep, and so can often dispense advice that's more culturally based or socially based rather than actually factually Mm. based. And uh, you know, often people we're seeing in the clinic are telling us, "Well, my doctor or my healthcare professional just told me the same thing as the lady down the street, or the same thing as what my aunt had had told me," and and that's where that comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a further still to explore. Like we could probably every year bring this topic out again and there's there's so much more to talk about and think about within this. Next way we'll try and explore it is there's some really lovely work on the history of sleep in European civilization Mm. about, you know, being awake for long periods during the night and how sort of European cultures have thought about sleep historically. So that's on my radar as as another way of trying to explore some of this. Cool. So if you're looking for more information on some of the things we've talked about in this theme, we'll put the links to Andrew Beale's research as well as to some of the previous papers in the show notes. Well, it's time for our clinical tip of the month. Your turn, David. Well, topical, keeping Mm. on sort of this cultural Mm. way of thinking about sleep is when as a health professional or when you're talking to anybody about sleep in any role, just trying to be aware of through what lens you're looking at it through. Mm. Are you looking at it through that lens of your own personal experience and belief structure about sleep? Or are you looking at it from a standing back, more scientific uh, sort of framework? Mm. Or a more psychological framework or a more cultural or religious framework? It's actually okay to have all these different frameworks of looking at sleep. But just yes. recognise which lens you're using yeah. when you're looking at sleep. That's right. So awareness rather than one being right or wrong per se. It's just awareness of what it actually is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just sort of uncovering it. And, and I've, I've found that really useful in my work as a healthcare professional when people are describing sleep to try and sort of step back and go, 
well, do I think that fits with the cultural norms? Does it fit with the scientific norms? Does it fit with that person's, you know, where they're at in life and their religious and spiritual beliefs? Because each of those has a different framework or a different way of thinking about slate. So, Moira, what's your pick of the month? I found a very interesting paper. I bet you've read this. About I haven't. Oh. You, you, you sent it to me. I'm like, ooh, that, that looks good, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. So it's in Nature and looking at, you know, the, the, jelly, <laughs> the jellyfish, like an ancient sort of almost amoebic type organism, uh-huh. and knowing that, you know, thinking that they actually have distinct sleep states. And I, mean, I wasn't aware of that. Did you think, did you know a jellyfish slept? No. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm learning every day. <laughs> so uh, that was my absolute pick of the month because I feel like it's almost, I'm going to, in this year and next year, if we, you know, as long as we keep doing this podcast, it's almost a bit like a bake-off. I'm going to really um, get really good pick of the month <laughs> to try and out because how can I ever outdo your, your Mr. Sleep? You've got every, you always have a really good book or a really good paper. So I'm going to be searching high and low for something obscure and interesting. <laughs> so that's mine. I'll put it in All the right. show notes. People What's can have mean? a look, a link it, to that. It, is it on? Or it, it's on. Yeah, it's on. Game on. <laughs> what about you? What's your pick of the month? Uh, well, see, I'm going to show my true nature and default to a book. <laughs> <laughs> and a book on cultural sleep stuff. You found a really good one. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. From my library of, of books, <laughs> books that I really like about sleep. So this one's called Dreaming in the World's Religions. And it's a comparative history of how different religions have conceptualised dreams and what they mean in a spiritual nature. Because really up until the early 1930s, as we talked about in one of our previous episodes about a dream, Mm. a lot of dream things basically had a spiritual understanding or a spiritual explanation of why they occurred. And so that's found in Christianity, it's found Mm. in Buddhism, Hinduism, pretty much any religion you want to look at has a sort of spiritual explanation of dreaming. So it's a book by Kelly Bulkley and really love it. Really nice book. It's a bit heavy going in some points, but if you're interested in the conceptualization of dreaming and how that varies historically, both in different wow. cultures and religions, yeah, I can highly recommend it. That author, do you know whether, is she a philosopher or more historian? Do you remember? No. <laughs> oh, we'll have a little. I'll have a little look at that. That sounds Hang interesting. On, from the back of the book, yeah, she's a visiting scholar at the Graduate Theological Union, yeah, okay, in so Berkeley, California. Mm, okay, yeah, great. So you game on. You always, uh, I've got to sort of up my game. <laughs> So what's coming up this year or, you know, this next couple of months? Yeah, so as we talked about, so January in Australia is a time for rest. So make sure you use your time in January to recharge before Mm. everything gets crazy again. Yeah. And the working year begins in in February. And look out for the next episode of our podcast, which will be uh, up in early February on hyperarousal. So a couple of really great interviews um, we've already done for that podcast and it's coming together really well. So great. So the rest in January and then followed by the hyperarousal that's expected in February (laughs) (laughs) once we're all back at work. (laughs) Very apt. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We've come to the end of yet another podcast. Please send us any suggestions. We always love to hear from any listeners. And, of course, if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes. And please subscribe by any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. See you next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.